Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 88, released on September 26, 2018. Today we will talk about a new European unicorn GitLab, rumors about uh, Uber and Deliveroo, and listen to two interviews recorded by Robin Wouters, one with Dr. Tanya Emmeling, principal at Hightech Grunderfonds, and the other with Mark Alexander Christ, uh, the co-founder at SumUp. I am your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Natalie, today will be talking about events that are coming up and about uh, French tech and the plans of France to become the land of ICOs. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing great. We're here recording very early and have an exciting day planned. I'm heading to Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen, and I'm really excited. Are you going there today? I am. I'm going, uh, leaving in a few hours and a number of really cool things planned. By the time this podcast comes out, the event will already be over. But um, I hope you can catch some of the, the great talks that we're going to have on YouTube. Right. Yeah, I hope they come to YouTube in time. Okay, since we have uh, plans and you have a plane to catch, let us dive straight into the news of uh, the week. And I will start uh, with uh, the new unicorn uh, coming from Europe. GitLab, a DevOps software platform, has raised $100 million at a valuation of $1.1 billion. So welcome to the Unicorn Club, GitLab. I generally like talking about GitLab. Uh, the company was co-founded by one guy from my hometown in Ukraine and another uh, from the Netherlands where I live right now. So it's kind of geographically close for me. Uh, it's an open source solution that began as an alternative to uh, GitHub in 2011. It was sort of GitHub on premise. I first met the founders in 2014 at the Next Web conference uh, here in Amsterdam. I also then ran a story about how the company was launched and that's actually a fascinating story. I will put a link to the show notes, so check it out. And at that moment in 2014, I remember what really jumped at me is that they only had 0.1% of paying customers. And that was exactly in line with their strategy. That was exactly how the company wanted it to be. It was, it was really interesting to talk to uh, Sid and uh, Dmitro. So yeah, check out that story. But uh, since uh, since that time, since 2014, GitLab has transformed into a much more comprehensive platform. And now the founders say that uh, it competes in six to nine uh, different product categories. And these categories would include everything from planning, uh, development and uh, operations, uh, all the way to issue tracking and hosting and uh, all the all sorts of things. And a few months ago, uh, when Microsoft announced its acquisition of GitHub, uh, GitLab uh, saw a significant influx of new users. Actually, I think they struggled with the scaling the platform rapidly enough, but uh, it all worked out fine at the end. And I would say now that it's quite probable that the Microsoft GitHub deal was a catalyst for this round of funding. 
Yeah, and I I remember the acquisition, and especially in a lot of communities around development, the Microsoft purchase was really controversial. And many developers were really looking for an alternative, and GitLab really was there for them. Yeah, and honestly, I still think that mostly uh, the fears that the developers had after the GitHub acquisition by Microsoft were kind of unfounded, kind of irrational. But yeah, a lot of people uh, switched uh, out of uh, GitHub at that point, and uh, GitLab uh, did definitely benefit uh, on that. So another interesting thing about GitLab, though, uh, is that in an interview for TechCrunch, uh, the co-founder, uh, Sitsa Sabrandai, uh, said that uh, he actually didn't plan to uh, fundraise uh, for GitLab this year. Uh, he only planned to start uh, the process in February. He said he blocked some time in his calendar and so on. But then Iconic, uh, which uh, led uh, the funding round, approached him and it suggested the valuation uh, that Sabrandai would be looking for anyway, uh, so the team decided to take uh, the deal. Another interesting thing is that uh, the round uh, was not just iconic, but uh, also Google participated in it through Google Ventures, which uh, kind of creates this uh, uh, sort of opposition between Google funding GitLab and then Microsoft buying GitHub. So there might be something in here. But Cybrandi implies that uh, this would be the last VC funding deal for GitLab before it goes public in November 2020. Uh, GitLab announced the IPO plans earlier this year for that particular date. And uh, the fact that it still stands by it might be a signal, I think, uh, that uh, Cybrandi and his team are not really considering uh, going the GitHub way and selling to a, a large corporation. So maybe funding from Google is just funding from Google. I remember when they announced that notion that they were going to go public in November 2020. And there was some kind of conversation about, well, maybe you're announcing this too early. The idea that, you know, it, this is quite far in advance. You don't necessarily need to hold yourself to something that might change very considerably in that time. And what uh, Sebrande also said in that interview is that he likes uh, the transparency and openness that uh, being public uh, brings. And uh, that's, uh, I also, I also kind of can see how this uh, goes uh, well uh, together with the company's general strategy and vision of being literally open as in open source, but also open uh, in the ways they work, in the ways they stack against uh, different uh, competing solutions and uh, things like that. So I do believe that they sincerely plan to go public, and I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened after all. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Now, next up uh, uh, in the news feed is the interview with uh, Dr. Tanya Emmeling, principal at uh, Hightech Gründerfonds, and a German uh, VC fund. The interview was recorded by our founding editor, uh, Robin Wouters. It's a really interesting piece. Uh, listen to it, and we will be back in just a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu. I'm here in Berlin for the Zero One Hundred conference. I'm sitting now with Tanya from uh, HGTF, the high-tech Gründerfonds. Um, can you briefly introduce yourself on the fund? 
Yeah, pleasure to meet you. So uh, we are Tagunda Fund. We are founded 2005 with the first fund. We have three funds with 900 million under management. Um, made already 500 seat investments, um, over 97 exits. We have 260 portfolio companies active in our portfolio. And we focus on uh, life sciences, hardware, internet, media, software, uh, and very interested in tech. Wow, you memorized those numbers really well. Um, can you briefly talk about the structure of is it a public-private partnership? Is it um, is it completely private now? Like, uh, what's the structure of the fund today? Yeah, it's a public-private partnership. So, about our third fund now, we have uh, over thirty percent private investors. So, basically, LPs from the entire German industry and Mittelstand as well. So, um, we are not publicly qualified so and that gives us the chance to invest like in um, uh, straight equity uh, on our own together with partners and very flexible in the structure what about stage are you stage agnostic do you usually do early stage up to series a like what's the what's the sort of the the tipping point where you stop investing yeah so we are seed investor and seed is qualified for us that the company is no older than three years old um, since incorporation and has no more funding than 500k euro um, from external investors so far so that limits uh, seed but uh, for the rest you're very flexible and do you invest exclusively in Germany or do you also invest in, for example, companies from abroad who see Germany as a target market, for example? Yeah, so we can invest um, basically worldwide, so, but um, we require that the company has an operative business in Germany as we uh, have to spend our 50% of our investments here also in Germany. So, And as a seat investor, we also like to be close to the company, so it makes totally sense that they have at least a subsidiary here or an operative business. Um, so in terms of future, you mentioned that like a lot of your investors now are private. Um, do you think that will change your strategy uh, in any way in the next five to ten years, let's say? Um, so we are definitely more flexible. So And we can look at companies now that are up to three years old. So that makes a difference to, to, to how ready they are already in their products, in their traction, um, how easy they get uh, follow-on rounds. Um, so that opens makes it more broader for us also to look at tech companies that have a very uh, long um, development cycle or, or also sales cycle to um, structure them right for the following investments. Um, of course, you have a, a good view on the German ecosystem, both in terms of the VC market, which you often co-invest with other investors, I'm sure, um, but also on the startup ecosystem in general. Um, are you positive? Do you see this in a positive way, the evolution? Um, yeah, so I'm very happy that the market picked up. So you see a lot of new players in the market. There are a lot of new funds, a lot of established funds raised uh, their follow-on funds. So you see that uh, there is uh, much more movement in the market than it was was just before. Um, and this enables also many companies to get funded for the first uh, for the first round uh, at least. But you see a, a certain trend also lately that um, the funds are. Uh, investing larger tickets into uh, specific deals and and not over many many deals. So um, I think so. There will be um, 
a filter so for for the companies that will get the following investments or um, that uh, that will be sorted out. So, um, when we do research, um, you consistently come up as one of the most prolific, uh, you know, active uh, seed investors in in Europe, uh, not just Germany. Um, but I'm always wondering, like, how big is your investment team, and like, how do you do this in the first place? Like, so many deals, how do you manage that? Yeah, so we make about 30 to 40 deals each year. Um, so we have an investment team that is around uh, 38 to 40 managers. And um, the managers are having a, a, their personal portfolio um, up to 12 companies. So um, to do that deals, you need to go out, source a lot, get the deals in. And then, um, yeah, so if, if your portfolio is full, then you help the younger um, investment managers to build up their portfolio um, so it's continuous work to to build that up and and follow the deals that are hot great well enjoy the rest of the conference uh, what do you hope to get out of today by the way mm. uh, it's very good network so exchange on um, what's the latest in this industry discuss hot topics for the exit part uh, um, deals of course and and it's always nice to see uh, people from the industry great well thanks for your time and enjoy the rest of the day Hello again, uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu number 88. We are still on to the news and now it's Natalie's turn to talk about uh, France and its uh, fintech plans. Yeah, well, thanks, Andre. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about France and French tech, where a few really interesting things happened last week. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know that the French tech ecosystem is one that I'm following a lot and I'm really bullish on because I've been really watching how they've developed in comparison to other startup ecosystems around Europe. And France really is interesting for a number of reasons. So They've been doing a number of cool things innovation-wise long before Emmanuel Macron revealed this plan aiming to make France the startup nation. After the Brexit vote, these plans really kicked into high gear, and they had some very serious concrete plans to turn Paris into Europe's fintech hub. You might recall that a number of French officials showed up in London scouting for French companies to bring across the channel last year. Well, I'm not sure how successful they were at that. There wasn't anything really published about any successful moves, but they've been continually coming back very frequently, especially last month. They continue this charm offensive where French economy and finance minister Delphine Guinée Stéphane, I'm sorry, I butchered that name again, has been returning to London really repeatedly over the summer to encourage, to speak with companies and to really encourage them to, to come back to France or to consider France and especially Paris as a potential place to headquarter their companies. Last week, she started a project in conjunction with the government-backed tech incubator, Les Suaves. Well, I'm sorry this name, uh, it sounds like a nightclub, and it probably sounds a lot better in French, but they it's a government-backed incubator that's in connection with Paris & Co., which you might have heard about, and it's especially dedicated to fintech. And they have a new call for 20 fintech startups that are looking to bring products to market, it opened last week as part of this larger plan to transform the country into a more tech-friendly and more fintech-focused one. Uh, the project is kind of typical of your normal incubator programs. The terms, you should have a look for yourself if that's something that's interesting to you. It doesn't compare really very similarly with private 
incubator and accelerator programs, but it's something that that you should have a look at. And it's all dedicated to fintech. Well, I guess sometimes uh, governmental programs could be beneficial, not necessarily for their terms, but just for uh, other opportunities they can bring. So I guess it's uh, something for startups to take a look for sure. And I also hear that France is uh, trying to jump on the ICO bandwagon, isn't it? That's right. And the second and maybe more exciting news is the approval of this new ICO framework that was advanced by the French parliament last week. The policy was designed with the aim of making France, quote, the ICO hub of Europe. Many countries are competing for this crown. So we've heard about Lithuania, Malta as blockchain island, um, a few number of other initiatives in Germany, especially. And I feel in some sense that the hype over ICOs has calmed down somewhat. So it seems like this policy is a little bit late to change. But it does, and it also appears in some of the reporting about the legislation that there's some slippage in the language between an ICO, cryptocurrency, and blockchain, kind of making some equivalencies here, which really is not true. <laughs> and in any case, the new legislation helps to legitimize companies through this licensing procedure. So kind of giving them a more stronger legal basis. So this policy is a start of what it hopes um, is a chance to greater incentivize French innovation and blockchain and crypto. In any case, what's important here, successful or not, is that these are two examples that are really indicative of France's forward thinking when it comes to future technology and how they're really working to improve conditions for te technical entrepreneurship. So when it comes to building hyper-growth startups, France has really had a lot of structural and institutional barriers, really preventing um, innovation in that area. I mean, you look at the tax law in terms of labor laws, it, they, these things made startups really hard to do. But what the country has been doing for the last few years, maybe better than a lot of other countries in Europe right now, is really take risks. And some of the things that it's done entrepreneurship-wise hasn't really worked out that well. And they received an, a lot of criticism from the tech community. But what what's really great is it's trying things and it's learning from that. It's learning from the successes of failure. They're taking on the criticism. And policy-wise, and especially working with policymakers, that's really important, letting them try things and letting them fail. And instead of giving up, which you might have expected, they keep throwing things at the wall and seeing how they stick. And it's bringing groups to the table that haven't had a seat before. They're really listening to and taking in a lot of feedback. And what they're doing, it's really interesting to watch and how open they are with trying to be innovative here policy-wise. And it's really a change of thinking. And in many ways, a very radical departure from how things were only a few years ago. And other policymakers around Europe should be really looking at what France is doing. And speaking of what France is doing, on November 12th, Emmanuel Macron and Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris and a huge champion of startups, um, both of them are having a GovTech summit in Paris. It's a really cool um, initiative. It sounds like a great opportunity. Everyone can get involved here. And if you're interested in GovTech and you're interested in working in France, um, it's something definitely to check out. And we'll put the link to the event in the show notes. And I hope you can take that, take in that event if it's something that's exciting for you. I hope to be there. Yeah, I remember it used to be really easy to kind of 
bash uh, uh, France as uh, one of the most uh, closed and barred and difficult uh, ecosystems in Europe. But over the past few years, I think it's definitely changed. And I really do appreciate the effort uh, that the government and the community are now uh, putting into it. This is absolutely amazing. And it really seems that the government and the community are now kind of in conversation with one another. And previously, it used to be kind of one side against the other side, really kind of arguing, well, you're not doing enough for us or you're doing things in the wrong way. Um, but now it seems like there's there's really this communication happening there and you see some very exciting things happening. Yeah, absolutely. Even if we don't see too many successful startups uh, coming from this ecosystem, which I don't think is going to be true anyway. Just this uh, this dialogue, this communication, this interaction, if it's written into a framework, it could be reused, I think, in different ecosystem uh, for, uh, for the good of uh, the realm, as they say in the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Right. So coming up next, uh, another interview recorded by uh, Robin Wouters, uh, this time uh, with the co-founder of uh, a German uh, startup SumUp, uh, Mark Alexander Christ. Uh, check it out and we will be back with more news in a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Wouters from Tech.eu and I'm here in Sofia, Bulgaria for the Digitalk Conference 2018. And I had a really nice interview on stage with Mark, one of the co-founders of uh, SumUp. Um, and I thought we'd repeat this for the podcast. Uh, hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, Robin. Thanks for having me. So what's SumUp? SumUp is card acceptance for small merchants. Our company vision is to become the first ever global card acceptance brand. Right. What does that mean, though, card acceptance brand? Card acceptance is basically... When you go to a merchant, there are these clunky terminals to accept cards. That's basically what we do, just with a slim 21st century solution, where we have a very cool and nice card reader that you connect to your cell phones and thereby accept card payments. The right. offer, offer to the merchant is basically you buy the card reader at a cost of like 30 euros as a one-time cost, and then just pay a, pay a percentage if and when you use it. Right. Um, and which countries are you active in today? We're actually in 31 countries, which includes the whole of Europe, plus Brazil, uh, Chile, and the United States. And where are you based? Um, I'm personally in Berlin, but we have like 10 offices across the world and see ourselves very much as a global operation. Headquarters in the UK because we're licensed in the UK. Got it. Um, you also have a presence here in Sofia? We also have a presence here in Sofia. How many people? 166, but now I checked the exact number. Oh, nice. Okay, good. And what, what attracted you to, to Bulgaria? My co-founder Daniel actually started Moneybooker's Grill before, and they have a pretty big presence in um, Sofia. So it's a very good uh, talent pool to get uh, people with payments experience. Got it. Okay. The elephant in the room, of course, is that your biggest competitor here in Europe, uh, Isal, was just acquired uh, by PayPal for a lot of money uh, in cash, no less. Um, so what does that mean for you and the industry as a whole? So number one, it's a very good validation for what we do as a business because um, our Swedish friends were also nice enough to publish their numbers as part of the IPO track. So I was able to find out that A, we're even a little bit larger than they are. And more importantly, we're actually growing twice as fast as they are. So we actually, over the last 12 months, grew 80%. What it also means is when we started out in 2012, we had like 30 competitors coming up just after us because it's a very attractive business. If you look at the landscape today, on the global scale, it's basically us. We're in 30 countries, Team Sweden in like 10 countries, and then there's Square from the US, which is in five countries. Right. 
And um, we're the last standalone player. And I think being private allows us to really grow aggressively and conquer the market. Right, so you have no plans of getting bought or IPOing anytime soon? Uh, not anytime soon. Great. Okay. Um, so you mentioned 80% growth. Was that in revenue, users? That's re revenue and users. They go pretty much hand in hand. Oh, great. Okay. So how do you onboard new users? How do you tackle new markets? So it's all very much technology-based, uh, the user onboarding. It's basically self-checkout. You go to a website, buy the card reader, it comes next day in the mail, and you can start transacting instantly. And if we look at new markets, Company Vision is the global card acceptance brand. So global is very much in our DNA. So we actually have a team that does nothing else than looking at new countries and launching them on, um, on a regular basis. Right. Of course, this is an ongoing process, but when do you think you will be able to call yourself a truly global acceptance brand? Well, that's very much up to definition. I think there are like 200 countries in the world. I think once you cover a third of them, you're definitely global. But if you look at card payments, the markets we're in today cover about half of the global volume. So in terms of wallet that we could get, we already conquered half of the world. Right. And um, we keep on chipping along. Yeah, so you're well on your way. Uh, really good. Uh, so do you produce the card readers yourself? How does this work? Yes. So we believe very much in owning the whole critical infrastructure ourselves because they're very tiny margins and it's all about the experience and usability for the merchant. So we produce our own card reader. We have the, our own firmware on the card reader integrated well into our apps, into our backend. And by basically on owning this whole value chain, we are able to provide the best service and the best product to the merchants. Right. Are you also adding new features on top for you know SMEs to kind of do better accountancy, data analysis, uh, e-commerce even? I, I don't want to give away too much, but we consider ourselves a payment company and focus very much on payments. So definitely a couple of ideas that might come out in the near future. Great. Uh, so let's talk about the B word, uh, Brexit. Is it in any way going to affect the way that you operate and the way that you're scaling today? Well, first of all, Brexit to me is an unbelievable waste of economic resources. It's a little bit, if you think about China, 300, 400 years ago, this was the leading country of the world. Then they decided to close down and China 20 years ago was what it was. So I hope Brexit is not going to go the other way. But to me, it's unbelievable, sad and terrible what happened. What this means for us, we obviously have a, a UK payment license, which we passport throughout the European Union. For the foreseeable future, that's still possible. But obviously, to prepare for Brexit, um, we're already looking at other locations to get a license there. And for us, it's actually easier than for the incumbents, because at least our license is five years old. So we're still, let's say, familiar with the process. Right. If you're a traditional bank and you got your license in the 70s, Good luck uh, right. pulling out the PDF and <laughs> and updating all the processes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's going to be a nightmare. Um, final question. What's your biggest problem today? What, what do you wish you could solve tomorrow? Cash. Cash flow? No, cash as in paper cash. Oh, as a in the, pe pe people paying with cash is a big problem. Right. And I really want to everybody to uh, pay by card. That's interesting, but it's also very cultural. Is it like for Scandinavian countries in China? I mean, paper money is almost gone completely, but some countries still prefer cash. Right? But I mean, coming from Germany, we're probably one of the shittiest market out there right. with like <laughs> very low card acceptance rates. However, the growth rates are actually pretty good. So I think the whole trend goes in the right direction. There are governments that push for um, like reduction of cash. There is the next generation that 
just completely doesn't understand how you cannot have the convenience to paying by card yeah. and merchants realize that they need to have cash payment uh, card payments sure. in order to succeed so we're on our way to a cashless society finally i don't think cash will fully disappear but i'm pretty sure we should get to 90 card payments great well mark thank you very much for your time and best of luck with the sum up robin it was a pleasure talking to you Hello again. Uh, welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu. We are still going through the news from the past week. And guess what? It's the rumors time now. We all love a good rumor and the past week has really brought us a juicy one. So Bloomberg reports that Uber is talking to Deliveroo about acquisition possibilities. And to put this in context, Uber already has a food delivery service of its own, Uber Eats. And if the deal comes through, it would control a pretty significant part of this industry, particularly in Europe. Because Deliveroo is actually one of the biggest European startups, uh, which last year raised about $480 million dollars. It was also in funding talks with the SoftBank, which is also an investor in Uber, but that conversation uh, never led to anything material. Uh, the suggested acquisition price is still unknown, but it's going to be a pretty significant amount uh, since the last uh, valuation of uh, Deliveroo was at over $2 billion. And this is really huge, especially um, when you can see across lots of European cities, Deliveroo is certainly one of the most visible startups in Europe. They really have built something that's changed a lot of lives here from creating this huge gig economy with lots of different jobs. And they've really shaken up the restaurant industry. Yeah, for sure. And uh, even though they do have a bunch of uh, a bunch of competitors uh, around uh, different European markers, markets, uh, they are definitely noticeable. And uh, But according to the unnamed source of Bloomberg, uh, the talks actually could still fall apart. Nothing is set in stone yet. And in part, uh, this could happen because uh, Deliveroo and its investors have been reluctant uh, to relinquish independence. So we're going to look and see what happens next. In a related news here, though, uh, a pretty big group of couriers uh, of uh, Uber Eats on motorbikes were coming to the London HQ of the company to protest against unfair wages uh, for two days in a row. Uh, the protesters chanted no money and no food and sounded the horns of their motorbikes. There is a video on Twitter and it's uh, quite a few people, I, I would say maybe between 50 and 100 uh, people. Uh, riders uh, told uh, The Guardian... Uh, that uh, Uber Eats uh, reduced the minimum per delivery rate uh, from uh, £4.26 pence to uh, £3.50. Pence, and uh, the protesters now demand that a guaranteed minimum uh, for London couriers would be £5 uh, per delivery. So much for gig economy, and I'm really wondering uh, whether uh, the acquisition in question would change anything for the people actually working within this economy and uh, uh, doing food deliveries. Consolidation is never really good for that kind of thing, is it? Right. And I imagine we haven't heard anything from Uber in response about uh, the protests, have we? Yeah, I think uh, what the only thing that uh, uh, Uber uh, said is that they are looking into uh, the ways to change 
uh, how they pay uh, the couriers. So I think they are going to, at least they say they are going to uh, introduce a new sort of scheme uh, that would uh, more like uh, would be more like paying per hour uh, than uh, than uh, per delivery. But I'm not really sure what it's going to be like, and I don't think they are sure what it's going to be like either. Great. So this is more or less it for the news, at least for the most important ones. If you are into uh, news in general, check out uh, our uh, newsletter. Uh, every week uh, we compile all the most uh, noticeable news stories uh, from the European uh, startup ecosystem in a very, very, very long list. Uh, check it out if you need more. Now we can move to events. Uh, Natalie, it is again your turn to bring us something interesting. Right. So, uh, of course, as I mentioned before, I'm currently heading to Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen. Really looking forward to a great few days there. Um, and there's And the barbecue? I, you know, I haven't heard of a barbecue taking place there. I know there probably is one. It's held in the meatpacking district of Copenhagen. There's a number of parties, events. We're going to have lunch with the Prince of Denmark on Monday. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm a vegetarian, so hopefully they have some things on the barbecue for me. But um, anyways, this will be a great event. And Andre. I think we're going to see you at uh, uh, some events this week. Where are you going to be? Yes, as I as I already mentioned uh, last week, uh, this week is going to be what's called Amsterdam Capital Week. Uh, so it's a series of uh, smaller scale events anywhere up to a few hundred people uh, bringing together investors and uh, startups and the other ecosystem players. Uh, my plan is to attend uh, an event called Angel Island uh, on the 26th of September. And this is a perfect uh, place to meet entrepreneurs, meet the founders. Uh, the idea is that uh, 400 people, I think, uh, give or take, are just coming together, uh, sailing on ships uh, to an actual island not too far from Amsterdam and stay there for the day uh, to talk, to share knowledge, uh, to exchange ideas and so on and so forth. You can't really pitch there. It's prohibited, uh, but you can uh, talk to each other and uh, you can be a human being to each other, which is a great thing. I think it's a great uh, way of uh, doing events and I'm really looking forward to that. And two days afterwards, I am heading to Ukraine uh, for an event called uh, Lviv IT Arena 2018 that's uh, happening from the 28th to 30th uh, September. It's also going to be a pretty interesting one. I think uh, there are quite a few interesting speakers. It's more of a traditional conference, unlike Angel Island, but uh, I'm also very much looking forward to going there and to, uh, and to be in Lviv again. Great. So looking forward on the event calendar, it brings us to October. And a pretty big event that we're going to be covering is Mondial Tech in Paris. So I'll be there speaking as well. So October 1st through 6th, um, Mondial Tech is dedicated entirely to mobility, um, connected cars, anonymous vehicles, and chiefly how they describe it, B2B relationships through the entire mobility value chain. So it's bringing together automotive manufacturers with startups, with investors, 
lots of people are going to be there and it's held in conjunction with the Paris Motor Show. It looks to be a really great time and I can't wait for that, especially to see all the concept cars, which is my favorite part. And the second event that you should know about and put on your calendar is, of course, Bits and Pretzels, which takes place in Munich, September 30th through October 2nd. So they always um, have this great connection with Oktoberfest. And Robin Vouchers will be there. He is there as a table captain. Um, and it's such, it's such a great event, really sparking lots of, of conversations and getting people really communicating and connecting um, over these very interesting um, topics they've selected this year. And it's something that they've really been working on um, with their event. And because last fall, um, you might have known, they, they had an association with the actor Kevin Spacey, who had worked in the past as an ambassador for the organization. And it had given them a bit of criticism. People were kind of wondering, why is this Hollywood actor um, participating in this tech conference? And it was something that, that was... Uh, became even more critical, especially after um, some um, harmful allegations came out against him. So they've cut their ties with him and they've really kind of focused the event and tried to make it have a lot of value for the attendees. And this year they're focusing on a number of diverse topics, especially kind of going back to this human side of tech, which we've been talking a lot about and one of the topics they're they're really focused on is about diversity, and they've had a, had a big call for for table topics um, across the year, and they also did a raffle offering uh, for free women in tech tickets, um, really to have a, a more diverse, more inclusive event. So they're, it's something that they're really thinking about, and I think it's really paid off for them. And they have a number of exciting things planned. Check it out. They're really great about putting all of their conversations and talks on YouTube after the event. So if you can't make it there, I know it's an expensive time of year and challenging time of year to get to Munich, but you can take in some of the best parts of the event by checking out their YouTube channel where they do have all of their conversations online and everyone is in traditional dress. So that's a number, another reason why it's a, it's a fun thing to take in, especially online. Right. So it looks like if you actually wanted to just leave your house and uh, hop between events, uh, you could do that uh, easily without uh, coming home for like two or three months at this time of year. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, my schedule is like planned until the first or second week of December. <laughs> it's very um, quite busy this time of year. Well, it's great. I really like it. I really like this season of uh, conferences. I really like uh, uh, going around and talking to people. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to meeting uh, whoever is at the conferences where I'm going to. And I'm sure that uh, uh, Robin and our other colleagues are the same. Uh, so let's move on to our next uh, section, which is recommendations of books, uh, stories, podcasts, or whatever else we think is good and uh, we want to share with our listeners. I will start with uh, my recommendation, which is uh, kind of related to uh, the news about uh, the Uber Eats uh, uh, couriers protesting in London. Last week, uh, Business Insider published yet another story about the life of Amazon delivery drivers. Uh, well, technically, they have little to do with Amazon itself, of course, uh, because they are all hired through uh, third-party logistics companies and they work as uh, contractors. 
it's not the first story either about the cost of the gig economy that Amazon, one might say, is abusing. The drivers work long shifts. Uh, they always rush. They routinely speed and blow stop signs. They urinate in bottles, all sorts of things, just to be able to deliver all these uh, packages in time to make all this uh, uh, Amazon's uh, marketing about uh, one-day deliveries, uh, uh, free deliveries, and so on, a reality. Uh, this latest story that I'm talking about uh, is about the US, so it's about the American drivers, but it doesn't really seem like the situation here in Europe is much different at all. In 2016, for example, a BBC correspondent uh, spent two weeks working undercover as an Amazon driver in the UK and uh, told a very, very similar story. There has been a whole series of uh, stories like this, and I will put a link to all these stories in the show notes. So if you have missed this series of reports on the American side, on the British side, please go ahead and read them, because this uh, is something that is definitely worth knowing and worth uh, thinking about uh, when we all praise the gig economy and the new ways of working. Natalie? Yeah. Yeah, and, and thanks for sharing that. Um, I remember getting a status update about an Amazon Prime order I had a few weeks ago, and it said your driver will be there after 98 deliveries. And it really kind of puts things in perspective, this, I, this desire for wanting efficiency and wanting things quickly, um, but also thinking about the real human cost, um, just imagining driving around to 98 or more um, destinations in one day. Um, we can all agree that seems like quite a, a, a pretty difficult um, day ahead. Um, and that's tough. Yeah, according to this story, uh, I think it's routinely more than uh, 150 to 200 uh, deliveries per day uh, for a driver. So it's it's really, really tough and it's really, really demanding. Well, yeah. Well, on a slightly different note here. So I'm this week I'm recommending a blog series called Point Nine Land, a beautifully named blog. And they, it comes from the Berlin-based VC Point Nine Capital. And before anyone kind of jumps all over me, um, I'll promise to say that we here at Tech EU are agnostic to funding methods. So this is not a vote for or against VC in any way, but um if you're a startup, of course, you know, there are many ways to fund your venture and VC is not right for everyone. Um, getting that disclaimer out of the way. But if you are a company that's looking to raise investment through VC, things have gotten remarkably better lately. And it's getting to be kind of exciting times when it comes to the European venture capital landscape. And one of the biggest improvements, I think, is that we're seeing an increasing amount of transparency around European VC. And as more players enter the game, also as things grow and mature a little bit, European VCs are opening up more than ever before, kind of distinguishing themselves and also showing many of the cards that they used to play close to the chest. And with greater transparency, VC becomes less of a mystery for people, especially early founders that are determining if it's the right way for them to go or not. So the more VCs share, the more time is saved by founders. And it's also a bit of community service as well in educating the community. So in the past, when things were more private and more secret and people didn't have as much experience with venture capital, there were some deals made, some bad terms. 
and people didn't know any better and founders founders didn't have that experience. And it led to these associations with venture capital as some like Christoph Jans of Point Nine has called vulture capital. So I really appreciated this new movement of VCs that are making their term sheets public, that are being clear with follow on funding terms and also holding themselves more accountable and to a higher standard. And this movement kind of got started with some funds in the U.S., but European investors have really taken this on, I think even more so than they have across the pond. And many of them are making their terms public and being really transparent about their activities. So you also see more VCs doing blogs and being more open with their communities more generally. So I have a Twitter list of about 140 European VCs. It's not exhaustive, obviously, but following them on Twitter gives you a lot of insight into their thinking and what they're looking for and how they're scoping different deals and evaluating different things. And I think it's a great thing because it gives founders a chance to get to know investors a little better. It helps them waste less time connecting with investors who might not be a great fit. Of course, as we talk about the conferences, many of the times you have matchmaking and you don't have often a great amount of time there to connect with the right people. So anything you can do to optimize your time is really valuable. Founders really focus on efficiency. That, that really is something that, that important driver. So for me, the blog Point Nine Land is really one of the pioneers of the medium. It's really been going on for a long time. And there's, a, of course, a number of other good VC blogs, but some of them often turn out to sound like sales pitches for their portfolios. But Point Nine Land is, is really different. It's updated regularly. It has accounts from many of the team members, has lots of helpful advice for early stage founders, for example, how to put together a fundraising deck. How is that different from other sorts of decks that you might need? Um, and lots more. From reading it, you can really learn a lot about how investors are evaluating different trends. And remember, all the investors are talking with one another. They're all in the, each other's networks, um, and it really gives you a great insight. So Point Nine Land sets a really good example, and it's helpful even if you're not looking to raise funding. So a standout post you might want to check out is um, one by Christoph Jans of how to make European venture capital a little more human. Um, and I think it's really insightful. It's very illuminating um, in how they're taking their fund. Um, and it's, it's a great read and something that I think Europe should really be proud of, this increased transparency and communication um, between the funding side and the community. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, I also do think that uh, the whole uh, relationship uh, between uh, VCs and uh, content on their website has uh, has changed uh, quite a bit over the past few years, where it used to be just like a one-pager. We are a VC fund. We invest in startups. Uh, write us an email over here. And now it's uh, more like, here's our blog. Here's our vision. Here are our investment thesis, whatever it is. So basically being open and being transparent and actually giving first uh, to the community, to the entrepreneurs they're working with. I think this is becoming more and more an integral part of the culture. And this is something really, really amazing to see. Yeah, definitely. And it wasn't really that long ago where these VC websites were kind of this 
black box of this is our contact information and we get too many emails to be able to respond to everyone individually. And now you really see kind of this growth and this increasing transparency, which is only um, a good thing for startups and for the community. Absolutely. So check out uh, the Point Nine Land uh, blog. And if you have favorite uh, VC blogs of your own, uh, please feel free to share it with us on Twitter or by email. And uh, we will definitely include it in our next recommendations. Uh, by now, though, this is it for our today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. Don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast app. Just look for tag.eu podcast. Tell everyone you know about the podcast. Follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andre at tech.eu. Enjoy the rest of your week and we will talk to you next Wednesday. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Have a great trip to Copenhagen and uh, talk to you soon. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye.